The best of our knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. On today's episode, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Carl Safina, an ecologist and author of Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. The book tells the story of an orphaned owl who was cared for by Carl and his wife Patricia during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. Dr. Carl Safina is a professor at Stony Brook University, an ecologist, author, and raptor rearer. His latest book is Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. At a time that coincided with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, a baby orphaned owl, Alfie, came into the lives of Carl and his wife, Patricia. Alfie is a female eastern screech owl, a small nocturnal raptor that can be found in the wild from the Rockies to the east coast of the United States. To learn more about his book, Alfie and Eastern Screech Owls, I spoke with Dr. Safina. Eastern screech owls look sort of like your typical owls that you would think of. They have the little feather tufts that look like cat's ears. They're very small, however. They're only about five inches long, and um, they come in two color phases, a, a gray phase and a brick-red phase. Most of the ones where we live on Long Island are the brick-red phase, and that's what Alfie is. Um, and when I say brick-red, it's not one color. You know, there's a lot of modeling, um, and they are incredibly well camouflaged when they sit still on a branch. So explain to me what Alfie actually looked like when you received a text, a a photo of this orphan bird. What did Alfie look like then? Honestly, Alfie looked like a wet washcloth. I had to squint at the photo to see that this was actually a bird. The text said, do you know what kind of bird this is? And I looked and I thought to myself, what? A bird? And, and, uh, and then I realized, oh yeah, that, that is actually a baby bird. Um, she she was all scrunched up. Her eyes were not open. Um, she was still very downy. She was only about 10 days old, much younger than they would normally leave the nest. So, you know, f- first of all, she, she was hardly developed into what would look like a bird, let alone an owl. And secondly, she was just in very bad shape, really dirty, um, and uh, and and just all scrunched up, look, looking, as I said, like like a bird that had died. So you decided to take Alfie in, and you have had some experience with other birds. I know you have some pet parrots, um, and have also worked with other raptors before. But how was rearing an owl different from your other experiences? Well, I had a lot of practice. My my whole life I've been involved with birds and keeping birds and studying wild birds as well. Uh, I raised homing pigeons when I was a child. I was a falconer and I worked with hawks and falcons. Um, I worked on the release of some captive bred peregrine falcons when I was in college at the time when peregrine falcons were going extinct and people 
started breeding them in captivity so that they could reintroduce them into the wild. Uh, and in a way, and I also uh, helped to start a wildlife rehabilitation group on Long Island. Uh, in a way, my approach to raising Alfie was patterned after the approach that we had with the peregrine falcons, which was basically feed them and keep them safe. And then once they are old enough to fly, just let them fly at their own pace at the place where they were raised, where they would come and go for a little while, a few days or a couple of weeks, and then they would wander off on their own. That was the idea. But Alfie's um, problem with her flight feathers delayed that um, by a lot, by months, until, as I said, you know, she went through a molt and we could see that she would, in fact, grow feathers normally. Um, as far as taking care of her, our approach was we never wanted to put her in a cage or confine her. So she always basically was loose to go wherever she wanted to go. Um, and uh, un until that time when we, when we realized that she couldn't just fly off naturally. So um, I gave her a, a very big enclosure, a big, big part of the outdoor part of a big chicken coop that we have. And she was in there through that molt. Um, as far as feeding her, we, we bought um, mice online, believe it or not. You can get frozen mice online because there are a lot of people who have snakes and things like that that eat rodents. And, um, you know, the screech owl's normal prey is all kinds of small animals, everything from beetles and moths to um, mice and even small birds. They, they are hunters. So everything they eat is an animal in one form or another. But mice are very, very good for them, very nutritious for them. And so mice and some vitamins and, uh, and a water bathing dish were, were what she needed to stay well-nourished and healthy. How long before Alfie developed what you perceived as a noticeable personality? Was there a delay in her, if this could be correctly said, about an owl in expressing herself? Well, I think the... You know, I think the thing that was not surprising was that since we were there literally from the time she opened her eyes, she was quite tame. That that was not surprising. And owls can be, you know, they they move at a at a time scale that is very similar to um to our own time scale. So for instance, if you had um a baby songbird. Songbirds, they do everything fast. They um, they flit here and there. Their perceptions are much quicker than ours. And they don't, you know, just sort of sit there and relax and interact. But, but owls do that. They do that in a way that is similar to parrots. You know, parrots are, they seem very relaxed most of the time. They move around at a at a rate that is easy for us to perceive and to interact with. And um, owls are kind of similar that way. But I was not surprised by any of that. 
What got surprising to me was more when she started to act like a wild owl. After we, um, after we were able to ascertain that her feathers came in correctly, she could fly really well, I got her in shape for release, we started to let her out, and then we left the door open, and she became a free-living owl. She remained tame with us, so we could see everything that she was doing, and we could just, you know, observe without inhibiting her in any way. But she very quickly attracted a wild owl, a, a male owl. And the, the part that was very surprising was that the courtship that began between them was not a stereotypical thing where, you know, the male did one thing and then the female responds in a instinctive, stereotyped way like you would expect if you read books. Or even, in my case, I had studied wild birds, but I wasn't watching them hours and hours and hours a day like I was with Alfie once the pandemic came and I couldn't really go anywhere. So there I was in my backyard with Alfie in view, for hours a day, and this wild owl coming around. And what I saw was the development of a relationship and personalities. The, um, the male was interested in Alfie. Alfie was very tentative, not very trusting at first. He started to bring her gifts of food, usually a moth, at first, she wasn't sure she wanted to take them, and she would take them sometimes, sometimes she wouldn't take them, and then they got more comfortable with each other. She started to perch much closer to him. Um, he would go and get food, and then she would eagerly accept it. Then they started the physical act of mating, which she was very awkward with at first because she was totally inexperienced, and then everything got very smooth. And then all, all of the delays and all of the tentativeness went away, and they were suddenly like a really bonded, trusting couple. That whole development of a relationship and the development of a bond is what surprised me. They weren't just acting out of instinct like little machines. One does one thing that makes the other respond a certain way. It wasn't like that. It was much more, much more of a recognizable development of a relationship that was, you know, not really that different than how it is with humans sometimes. Have you seen a relationship like that develop between any other species of birds? Well, not really. Now, so the thing is, like I said, the the pandemic allowed me and prompted me to watch Alfie for about five hours a day. So when I was a little kid and I raised homing pigeons, I would often just stand in the coop and watch them. And I, and I saw them develop their, I saw them pair off, let's put it that way. Um, and I, I saw, you know, that certain, certain pigeons would, would form pairs and there'd be squabbles sometimes between the pairs and things like that. Um, but it wasn't 
it wasn't the same kind of slow developed relationship. And of course, there's a difference between, you know, being a seven or an eight year old like I was when I had my pigeons and and being um, a person who had been watching and studying birds for 40 years. I, I certainly watched the owls with a very different eye for detail than when I was a little boy. When I studied wild birds, I studied mostly seabirds that breed in big nesting colonies, seabirds called terns. And I, I watched the courtship there. Um, the males would often come back with a fish. They would um, sort of do a little dance. The female would accept the fish. They would mate. And because there were hundreds of them, I, di I couldn't tell individuals apart. I couldn't really see something like the development of a relationship like this if that was was what if that was what was going on it looked to me more like what i read about and learned to expect in from textbooks that that a male would do one thing a female would respond in a certain way and then they would be a pair so that's the way it looked to me but as i said i wasn't there many hours every day. I couldn't tell the individuals apart. And so you, you, your question was, have I seen the development of something like that with other birds? But partly I could say no, but, <laughs> but, but I could also honestly say, I don't really know because I wasn't able to watch other birds in the same way for the same amount of time with my focus on individuals. And so, you know, Alfie, in a way, was no longer an owl. She was Alfie. She was an individual, and her life was being defined by the history she had and the relationships she had with me, with my wife, with her wild mate. Um, much more interestingly, along the same lines, is that after several years, and this is not in the book, but after several years passed, um, she acquired a new mate. He had a very different personality from her first mate. Her first mate was pretty relaxed with us being in view, and the second mate was much more elusive and much more aggressive if we were anywhere near their nest than than was the first mate. Um and, and certainly Alfie is just she's just completely relaxed with us being anywhere. So all these differences, these different personalities and these different histories make them really individuals, which I was not expecting. And uh I, I think that that was in a way the most remarkable aspect of the whole thing. Reading the book, it seems like you quickly became attached to Alfie, and at one point you left for a trip uh, after Alfie had begun to fly, and she disappeared for a few days, and then your wife had texted you while you were away saying that Alfie's back. Did you feel like Alfie would have never returned in those moments? Oh, well, I kind of expected that she would not return. That was my biggest fear, and the rate of survival of young wild birds and um, and young owls is very, very low. Probably 
one out of 10 survives into adulthood and actually becomes a breeding adult bird. So I was always really worried because I knew her chances were low. Um, Her upbringing was obviously not the normal upbringing where young ones are out and about for several weeks while their parents continue to feed them and they can follow their parents around. They can maybe learn some things by watching. And so with all of that in mind and how fond I was of her, I, I was expecting that she might just vanish and very worried that her chances would be really low. And so what happened was she did vanish. She vanished for about five days. We know we she was really gone, gone, because we were leaving food out for her and it was not getting taken. And, um, and then I was, uh, yeah, as you said, I was away on a trip and, um, very late at night, my my wife was out sitting on the deck talking to a friend of hers. When Alfie showed up again, uh, I was I was in Europe. It was six hours later there, so <laughs> it was uh, it was about 4 a.m. where I was when my phone dinged, and I got that text saying, "Guess who's back?" I, I was very delighted that she was still alive. Obviously, now let's talk about. Alfie's first mate, you nicknamed Plus One, and they yeah. had babies. And did you feel like a father or a grandfather when when the chicks were born? No, not really. I I never I never really wanted a relationship with those little ones. I I mean, to me, that was that was Alfie's life, and that was her her life with her mate Plus One, and that was his kids, you know, and I was just, I was thrilled and delighted and totally fascinated, but I I never felt really any, I I wasn't, I didn't want to feel like part of their family that I think that would have been a little bizarre. And um, I was just completely delighted at how everybody was surviving. Everything was working out so well. And they were in a way really beating a lot of odds. You write in the book so much about world religions and you reflect on the traditions of the Native Americans. Why did you want to include that in the book? Why was that such a big part of the story of the life of an owl? Well, that was part of the story of the life of the author, really, in a way, because the owl had prompted a big question in my mind. And the question was, after spending an entire career trying to study nature and and work with conservation, why was I so surprised at Alfie's natural capacities to form relationships and to form bonds, her emotional capacities? Why are we so disconnected with nature and so unfamiliar about who is living in the world with us? And is that unfamiliarity something that reflects a limitation of human intelligence or are we taught to disconnect? So my way of getting at that question was to say, well, what are other people taught? What were other people taught in other cultures over centuries 
in other parts of the world. And so I looked at uh, indigenous people in different parts of the world. What, what, are, what do they say about their traditional relationship with the rest of the living world? What about the South Asian religions? What do they say about the human place in nature? What do people in Eastern religions and Eastern philosophies, like Taoism and Confucianism, what did they say about the human place in nature? And what did our own culture, the Western culture, starting with the Greeks and, you know, as it developed in Europe, what, what, did, what did we teach about the human place in nature? And it, it turns out that the Western view is very, very different from the others. What the others have in common is that they teach that we live in a, a webwork of relationships, that everything in the world and in the cosmos is related, that, the, that all things that are sacred are part of the world. The world contains everything and um, everything that's sacred and holy. And that while humans are different, we're not better than the world and we're not better than other living things. And that the, the, the thing that makes humans special is that we have a responsibility not to upset the balances that keep the world going. That's what all the other cultures taught. But our culture teaches almost entirely the opposite of all of those things, that um, the world is here just for us, that we are better than the rest of the world, that our role in the world is to use everything, and that what is sacred and holy is not of the physical world. It is, it is somewhere outside of space and time, the place that we call heaven in Western religions. And, uh, and that is entirely different. Um, and many consequences flow from that difference. Did this experience prompt you to continue studying religions and traditions further? Well, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think, I think it, it helped to further the way that I see life. Um, I think I was pretty well along that path for a long time myself because I'm an ecologist by, well, sort of by natural inclination, but also by formal training. I have a PhD in ecology and ecology is entirely about the relationships that exist in the world. It's about the relationships among living things and between the living world and the non-living aspects of the world that make life possible. In other words, the water cycles, um, climate, climate cycles, carbon cycles, um, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, I, I, I was trained as a relational scientist. And so a, a relational point of view 
and um, a kind of relational sense of living comes naturally to me. I think that looking at all these other philosophies and religions over time was something that was totally new to me. I, I never thought that that was too interesting, but I found it completely fascinating because it explains so much about how we are and why we are that way. And um, I, uh, I, I, you know, it, it hugely expanded what I feel is my understanding of the world and our our way of being in it. And I just want to point out back to Alfie at one point in the book, you call Alfie a perfect little Zen master, <laughs> which I thought was, which I thought was fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so you could see this in some way uh, in a wild animal. Well, in some way, yes. In, in some way, of course, that's a little bit of projection, but I mean, in terms of, the idea of paying attention, being here now, being in the present, being fully in the world. Yeah, every other creature is that way. We're the only ones who are often just in our own heads. And um, a person I mentioned in the book, a man named Ben Killam, who works in New Hampshire, raising orphan black bears for rewilding. He, he said to me something I, I think is very interesting. That is um, that language has taken humans from being knowers to being believers, that all the other animals learn things. And when they learn things, they know those things. But humans are told things. And when we're told things, we believe those things. We believe them whether they're really right or whether they're mistaken. I thought that was incredibly insightful. And it results in the, uh, in the subtitle of the book, which is what owls know, what humans believe. So, Carl, what's next for you? And uh, do you have any other interest in <laughs> rearing orphaned animals? Well, in a different life, I probably would love to be rearing orphaned animals most of the time. Um, I really, I find it to be incredibly fascinating, and it just expands my sense of who I'm in the world with. But um, in my life right now, I'm, I'm not looking to do more of it. Um, I have a list of books that I might like to write, and... Pretty soon, I'm going to have to circle back into that list and decide what my next writing project is going to be. Well, best of luck in your search, Carl, and thank you so much for sharing and, and speaking about Alfie. And The book is called Alfie and Me, What Owls Know and What Humans Believe. And thanks again for taking the time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking the time. I, I'm honored to be with you today. Dr. Carl Safina's book, Alfie and Me, is published by W.W. W. Norton. This is The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1737. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. 
Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan, the latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.